Lord, we have before us today two verses of Scripture. And yet, Lord, two verses of Scripture that are packed, pregnant, Lord, with incredible meaning, not just for the people of of Israel who had gone back to Jerusalem, but for us as your people today. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage, would you allow us to be humble before you, to be teachable, to be willing to receive your truth, and Lord, to see even our hearts and our struggles and our concerns and our sin in the text of your word, and to see how, Lord, you minister to those who are your own because you love them and you care about them and you want their growth. So, Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your text and, Lord, to to love your people by bringing the truth to bear on their lives. Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you know, because I've shared it a couple of times, and of course you um, supported my wife and I, you know, when I went to Scotland as part of my uh, sabbatical. It was the first, I want to say, section of the sabbatical. And uh, I went on a one-week Reformation tour, which is where I'm getting a lot of this information from, and is really, really helpful for me. But at the end of that tour, I began kind of a, a new journey. That was a personal journey in Scotland, and I was going to go down through Wales and then ultimately down into England. And uh, so my tour guide took me to, to the, um, the, the, they call it a car hire place, but the car rental place in Glasgow, and I got my car, um, and it's, it was a Peugeot 308. It's a French-made car. And I was thankful because I was able to use the CarPlay function. If you know what I'm talking about with modern cars, that's really helpful if you're driving and you really have no idea where you're going. Um, problem was I had difficulty loading my phone into the car because everything was in French. Um, well, finally I got the phone hooked up and uh, the navigation system with Google Maps and started to head out of the city of Glasgow and onto the freeway. They call them motorways there. And all I had to do was to stay on the M8 for about an hour and a half from Glasgow, which is kind of central, over to the east beyond Edinburgh. So I was traveling east. Just had to stay on that freeway and then get to a certain point where I would get off, take a few country roads to get to a golf course where I was going to play golf, one of the things that I was wanting to do. It's in Scotland. You know, when in Scotland, you got to play golf if you can. So that was one of the things I was heading to do. So I'm driving down the M8, and, uh, or the freeway, I should say, and um, things are going well. Everything seems to be working. And then all of a sudden, bells start ringing. Alarms are going off. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. The screen is flashing. And the car starts speaking to me in French. Now, I don't know what the bells are for, or what the alarms are for, or what the flashing was all about and I certainly don't know much French. I know a little bit, but not enough to know what was going on. And so just quickly, I had to make some decisions and try and figure out what was going on. I knew that there was some, some different kind of uh, merging that was going on, going diff- this way and that way, and I just kind of assumed, based on all this stuff, it must be saying, you're missing your turn off. You need to, you need to merge left. So I merged left, and everything seemed to be fine. I still had the, that blue line on my Google Maps, and so I was like, okay, things are good, I'm on my way, and I will get to my destination, I'm looking forward to it. But as I continued on, I began to question myself. Where am I actually? This is all new territory for me, right? Where am I going? And then wouldn't you know, and not making this up, um, the GPS just went out. In other words, the connection somehow went out, and I no longer had a blue line. All I had was a freeway, and I had no idea where I was, and I had no idea how to get to my destination, except for the fact I knew that I had to stay on the M8. But like here, but maybe not as often as here, you have a little sign on the road that says, you know, just to remind idiots like me what road you're on, and it wasn't the M8. It was a different motorway. So I figured, ah, all that flashing and bells and that kind of stuff wasn't for me to get off. It was for something else. So now what am I going to do? I'm trying to find an exit. Well, there were hardly any exits. Like here, there's usually lots of exits on the freeways. 
but there wasn't there. So maybe 15 minutes later, no joke, I pull over off the exit. There's an old gas station. I'm thinking, okay, if I can just get Wi-Fi, I can get this thing hooked back up, and I can get, the, I can get Google Maps going again, and I can get to my destination. And fortunately, this old gas station did have Wi-Fi. It was free. I was able to download the, 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 the navigation system and ultimately was able to make it to my destination. Now, I was in a new country with unfamiliar roads, driving on the wrong or other side of the street in a French-speaking car. And I was lost, and I needed direction to get me back on track and to guide me to my destination. Now, friends, there's a sense of all that going on right here in Ezra chapter 5. We have a people who have lost their way. We have a people who are not on track for the destination that God has called them to, and God then comes and speaks to them through his word to expose them for where they're at and to move them to where they need to be. Let me just back up a little bit and set the context if you haven't been following with us or maybe just to remind you. About 50,000 um, remnant Jews went to Jerusalem because of the decree of Cyrus. And they went there specifically, yes, to establish their homes, but also to rebuild the temple. And if you remember, they rebuilt the altar, and then they rebuilt the foundation of the temple. And they had a wonderful celebration. They were rejoicing together. But the people of the land were like a, a mixed group of people. The, the Old Testament, I want to say, um, beginnings of what we would call the Samaritans in the New Testament. So they were a hodgepodge of different peoples that worshipped a variety of gods, and including the gods they worshipped was the God of Israel, Yahweh. All right, and last week we saw that. They attempted to, to cause the people of Israel to compromise, uh, saying, hey, you know, we'll come and join and help you build this thing, but the uh, leadership, Zerubbabel and Joshua said, no, we understand what you're trying to do. And their rejection of the people triggered them now to oppose the people rebuilding the temple. And so they used discouragement and fear and frustration to hinder the work and even sent messengers to the leader at that point in time, Darius, and ultimately the building of the temple stopped for 16 years. That's where we have the people now, right? During those 16 years, the people of Israel were discouraged. They were living in fear. They began to rationalize away the call from God to rebuild the temple. Instead, they started to focus on their own lives, their own houses, their own, I want to say, businesses, their own farms. And there was a, a rationalized apathy about the rebuilding of the temple that settled into them that they even got to the place to say, oh, this is not the time when God wants us to build the temple. So, what does God do into this context? Well, what does he do to wake this remnant up from their slumber? What does he do to restore his people back to their purpose? What does he do to motivate them to return to their task of rebuilding the temple? The answer is he ministers to them through his word. And here's the proposition for this morning. We all need the restorative ministry of the word of God. Now, I know this might sound like a typical Sunday lesson, Sunday school lesson, just kind of read your Bible, pray every day. But friends, I want you to see the significant aspect or impact of the word of God that is given to the people to restore them back to what God had called them to. And friends, it's not just that the people of Israel needed it. We need this too. And we find ourselves, friends, stuck in the rut of discouragement and fear and frustration and apathy. And ultimately, we start to live our lives for ourselves rather than the Lord. We need the restorative ministry of the Word of God. How does the psalmist explain this? Well, we could go to a few places, but 
Listen to Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, please hear this. The Word of God is not just a resource to tap into every now and then to get some ideas. It is what you need to live and to breathe in your walk with God. It's essential. So don't take it lightly. And we all need this restorative ministry of the Word of God in our lives. And when the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed and received, it will produce fruit in the heart of the believer. And so this morning, we're going to look at two points, two parts of the structure, the Word of God proclaimed, and then secondly, the Word of God received. Notice the Word of God proclaimed. Let's read verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here is this discouraged, apathetic, fearful, self-centered people now, and they are going to be listening to God's prophetic represent representatives, Haggai and Zechariah. But I want you to notice, first of all, the nature of the word proclaimed. We're told here that both Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews in the name of of the God of Israel who was over them. They, their prophecy was with the authority of God. They were speaking for him. Friends, when you open up the word, it is God speaking by his Holy Spirit through the printed word to you. These are not man's thoughts. This is God that has put himself and his thoughts and his ideas in his word. And he is the one who was over them. Ultimately, he was the one that they are accountable to. So the Lord knew that this remnant needed to be roused out of their slumber, and that the Word of God was necessary to do that. And so he needed these two prophets to come in and to speak and to proclaim his truth to them so that would happen. And as both Haggai and Zechariah come to Israel and proclaim God's truth, they do so with his sovereign authority. And friends, similarly, in today's context, we desperately need preachers who are willing to proclaim God's truth with authority to the people of God, to open up the word of God and say, thus says the Lord. But unlike the prophets in the Old Testament who were speaking as direct conduits from God to the people, the, the, the preacher today, the pastor today, seeks to proclaim the already revealed, completed, and sufficient word that is the Bible. 2 Peter 1.19 says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What you have is a prophetic word more sure. It's written. It's there. You can open. You can read it over and over and over again. We need God's word to be made plain to us without any attempt to make it palatable or sugarcoating its content. Certainly, it needs to be explained. It needs to be illustrated. But we don't seek to make it palatable. Now, you've probably heard this illustration before many times. But anyone who teaches the Bible must do all they can to be like a waiter who delivers the food of the chef uh, that has been cooked for the people in the restaurant. A waiter doesn't look at the plate and say, 
man, I don't like the presentation there. I'm going to move these things around and I'm going to put some salt and pepper on it because these people are not going to eat it. I mean, it's liver. How would they want to have liver, right? But that's what, that's what was ordered. That's what the chef made. He is the creator. He's the crafter. He's the one who knows best. And when we throw what we think is not going to be palatable and we somehow try and change it, then we ultimately change the word. And so our job is to present it as it is from God and let it do it. Let it do its work. That's the nature of the word proclaimed. Now notice, secondly, the message of the word proclaimed. And this is buried now in verse 1. What would you say is the common theme of the prophets? This is audience participation now. What's the common theme of the prophets? You went through all the prophets. What would be a common theme? What do you think? Wake up, okay. What else? Redemption, okay. Repent. Yeah, probably if you, if you boil it down, it would be two words that are the opposite side of the same corn. Judgment or repentance. All right, we're, wake up. Why? Because I'm going to judge you if you don't repent. Okay. And I think that's a pretty common thing. Well, the, the messages of Haggai and Zechariah will both speak to the need for repentance, but they will also speak of Israel's hope. Haggai speaks more directly to the people. Zechariah speaks more in a pop, an apocalyptic form, which means he uses like images and, and visions that really at first are somewhat confusing, and quite frankly, even when you studied them, are somewhat confusing. That's the nature of apocalyptic, uh, the apocalyptic genre. But they both anchor their prophetic messages in history at the outset of their book. So turning your Bibles to the book of Haggai and Zechariah, one is right after the other. You have Haggai, or you want to go to the end of your Bible and start working your way back. You want, that's a good way to go too. But Haggai and then Zechariah. And the reason we're doing this, friends, is because this is the very moment. This is the situation. This is the context into which Haggai and Zechariah now speak their prophetic messages. If you just to read through the Bible and you kind of go on the minor prophets, all right, Joel, Obadiah, Nahum, you kind of read them that way. It's hard sometimes to understand what's going on in those books if you don't have an understanding of the history of Israel and where they fit. So now here we are not only in the book of Ezra, but Ezra is saying that something is happening because Haggai is speaking and Zechariah is speaking. We want to say, what did they say? What was God saying through his prophets to the people? First of all, I want you to notice, though, before we actually get to one of the individual messages here, I want you to notice how each of these books begin because they anchor themselves in the history of the world, in particular the history of Israel. Notice Haggai, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, do you know when he spoke? Absolutely. Now, just flip over a couple of pages to the beginning of Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So you have Haggai speaking in the sixth month, and you have Zechariah speaking in the eighth month. So there's about a two-month difference there. Now look back in your hands, if you have it open, back to Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24. This is where things ended up last week. It says this, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see how all these things are coming together, landing in the same year. This was a message from the Lord by two prophets for the people of Israel at this particular point in time in this particular situation. That helps us understand now how these messages are going to relate to these people. So let's jump into Haggai. What's the message of Haggai? We're not going to be able to dial down into everything. I did a series of sermons a number of years ago that are online if you want to listen to them. 
But Haggai preaches four sermons in the space of four months, and he has given us the very day for each prophetic word. The first one is the second year, sixth month, first day, which we read. The next one, chapter 2, verse 1, the seventh month, 21st day. The next one, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the ninth month, the 24th day. And then on the same day, he, does, he speaks again on the, uh, that 24th day. That's chapter 2, verse 20. We're going to spend most of our time here in the first one, the first sermon, because this is really how things kick off. And we'll just touch on the, the, the last three. So I would encourage, if you have your hands, uh, your Bible is open to the book of Haggai, you'll be able to follow along, I think, quickly and well. Sermon 1, consider your ways. If anyone during those 16 years had raised the question, do you think we ought to do something about starting work on God's house again? I mean, they're all sitting around the table, they're having dinner, and the person kind of leans back and says, you know, do you think we should do something about rebuilding the temple? The people would have said, oh, the time is not right yet. And they would have come up with all sorts of excuses as to why the time was not right. In other words, the spirit of apathy had crept in over the people, and they, they just could not be roused out of it. And they begin to focus on themselves if we can't build the temple, then we need to focus on taking care of our homes and sowing our harvest and putting clothes on our backs and making money to care for the family. And God says through Haggai now, chapter 1, verse 4, notice what he says. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? And what's happened here, friends, is that the people of Israel have taken the materials that were supposed to be used for the temple and they had instead used them to panel their own houses. I mean, this makes logical sense. If we can't build the temple and all this lumber that we brought from Tyre and Sidon is sitting here, we don't want it to rot. How about we just use it in our homes? That'll be a wise, sufficient thing to do. So they got nice homes, but the temple is in ruins. And by the way, 16 years later, foundation's been built. 16 years it's been sitting there. What is your yard like after 16 years of inattention? You're not just going to bring a lawnmower and go, it's like it's going to be nice. No, it's a mess. I mean, it's just, it's, it's rubble. And what happens is that people then start to steal things from places that have been left like that. Why? It's not being used. Continue on, verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. It's just empty. All these things that you've tried to do produces emptiness. So Haggai prophesies and says, consider your ways, consider your priorities. Is it any wonder that the things that you're doing are all going to ruin? It's an interesting image, isn't it? You put money into your pockets, but your pockets are full of holes. Again, look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is not a happy message, by the way. God is not pleased with his people. Now, could this be said of us today? Could this be true of the church today? Have we allowed our hearts to drift so that we are neglecting the word of God, or the work of God, I should say, and are now justifying our own self-serving pursuits instead of what God has called us to? Is it true in our own hearts? Consider your ways, friends. Has the spirit of apathy slowly crept in over time that has moved you from passionately living for the Lord to neglecting your responsibilities before him? 
Has the church settled into some kind of a religious pattern or habit to the neglect of its responsibility to be the salt and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we making excuses for our neglect? Well, Pastor Rod, people just aren't that open to the gospel anymore. And remember, friends, God calls people out of what? Darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. When they are in darkness, they don't know the gospel. And maybe bits and pieces of it they've heard, and they're against it. But God himself is the one who calls people out of darkness. Well, I'm not allowed to share my faith at work. It's against company policy. I understand it's against company policy, but do your coworkers know that you're a Christian by your work ethic, your kindness, your consideration, by your confidence in the Lord? When someone's going through some kind of a difficulty, do you offer to pray for them? Do you make yourself available as someone that could be talked to if necessary? Do they know that you're even a Christian? Friends, what God is doing through his prophet Haggai is to snap the people out of their apathetic and self-serving slumber, and he's seeking to encourage them to get back to the work of building the temple. And how does Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people respond to Haggai's first sermon? We're told they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They listened to what was being said by Haggai, and they go back to doing what God was calling them to do. And it says also they feared the Lord. And I think the idea there is that they, they were like, okay, we've got to put him back now into his rightful place. He is our sovereign God. And not only we listen to him, but we need to honor him with our lives. So he's back there. We're paying attention to him. And God promises saying, I am with you. Now, friends, when we're, we're talking to a God who has been against us and we were able to be reconciled with him, and as a result of that reconciliation, he says, I'm with you. Those are good words. Those are wonderful, sweet words. And he stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people to return to, the, to working on the house of God 24 days later. That's in verse 15. It's a pretty powerful section of Scripture, isn't it? In Sermon 2, he's really speaking now into the temple. Some of you see this temple, and it doesn't seem like it's that, that a grand thing. You're, you're discouraged. It doesn't compare to Solomon's temple. I want you to notice something, he says. This is verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, and in this, in this place I will give peace. You think Solomon's temple was wonderful. I know the temple you're building isn't the greatest. Even Herod's temple, although it was great, will not compare because all of them will be destroyed. But there's one temple that will be greater than the former. And it's not talking here about a physical temple. He's talking here about the spiritual glory, the glory that comes through Jesus Christ in, in the gospel that begins to penetrate the lives of people. This will be far greater than any facility. Now again, if you haven't been to Europe and seen cathedrals and seen places that are places of, of worship, I put that in quotes, you don't understand the magnitude and the grandeur of these places. They are. You walk in them. They're supposed to be so magnificent that you feel like you're in the presence of God. And you walk in, you're like, wow. Let me tell you something. God is no more in that building than he is in this building today. Buildings are great, but they are not a substitute for the actual, true, sovereign God that we worship. And once again, God says, work, for I am with you according to my covenant. I am with you. The next one, this one is basically saying this. Look, I brought you back to, to Jerusalem. But just the fact that you live in Judea, just the fact you live in Jerusalem doesn't mean that you automatically become holy. <laughs> Holiness is not about where you live or that you're in close proximity to Jerusalem or even to, you know, what bits and pieces of the temple that you have. Holiness comes from me. 
Sermon 4. And here things shift. There is now hope established in one who was ultimately going to come, and his name is Jesus Christ. But the emphasis here is on Zerubbabel. And if you remember, we took time a, a few weeks ago to see that Zerubbabel is in the line of David. In Matthew's gospel in particular, he is a descendant of David. In other words, he is a, he is a forerunner then of Christ. And here, Haggai says, well, God says through Haggai, I've chosen Zerubbabel, my servant, and make him like a signet ring, for I have chosen him. This is first encouraging for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is God's chosen instrument to lead the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. This is also an encouraging word for the people. He's saying that this is through the line of David that ultimately my Messiah would come. Now, friends, all of this is being used by God to wake the people up and to encourage them to get back to the task that he's called them to. Zechariah, the message of Zechariah. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. It would appear that Zechariah is much younger than Haggai. And this book is called a minor prophet, but is the longest of the minor prophets. And it's probably the most difficult of the minor prophets. It's divided into four sections. Section one, which is more direct, very much like what we read there at the beginning of Haggai. We're going to get back to this. Section two is this eight visions plus a couple of more um, that really are an encouragement to them, give them hope for what they're doing as far as the building of, of the temple, but even broader than that. Section three is an encouragement to live in covenant obedience. How are we supposed to live in the kind of context we're in where people are opposed to us? And he says, live in covenant with me. That should always be what we're doing, right? All of us should always be living, seeking to please the Lord and live for him no matter what the situation is. But section four is full of messianic hope. It's a very difficult section of Scripture to understand and interpret. We're, we're talking here chapter 9 all the way through chapter 14. But it's highly messianic in nature. Listen to what Walter Kaiser says. He says, Zechariah is not the longest, is not only the longest book of, uh, of the 12 minor prophets, it is one of the most frequently quoted. There are 71 quotations from or allusions to Zechariah in the New Testament. One-third of these appear in the Gospels, and 31 are found in the book of Revelation. Let me throw a few out for you here. The angel of the Lord, the righteous branch, the king priest, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, the good shepherd who was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the pierced one, the coming judge, the righteous king, if you're in Zechariah, turn to chapter 9, and I want you to read, and just follow along as I read, verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There should be bells ringing, not French bells, but just bells ringing. But I want to get back to the first section for a moment. So go back to Zechariah chapter 1, and let's just pick it up at verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. <laughs> That's a small statement. <laughs> Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, and it goes on. So I want you to notice that Zechariah is prophesying now two months after Haggai, and he's saying, don't be like your father who did what? Who didn't listen to the prophets, and as a result, rebelled against what God's Word said, and ultimately were judged. That's why they ended up in Babylon. And so ultimately what Zechariah is doing, he's coming two months later saying, listen, you need to listen to what Haggai 
has been saying. Don't stiff arm him. Listen to what he says. Don't be like your fathers. And then he gives those famous words. Return to me, and I will return to you. Friends, when we have wandered away, when we've been disillusioned in some way, discouraged, maybe it's fear, maybe it's frustration, but somehow we've stopped our pursuit of Christ and the things that he desires for us, he says, listen to what I have to say. Return to me and I will return to you. So what can we discern about the nature of the ministry of the Word of God? Well, the Word of God confronts us seeking our repentance. It convicts us of our sin. It wakes us up. It revives us to do what we're called to do. It encourages us during difficult times. It gives us hope. It teaches us how to live in obedience, pursuing holiness. It gives us a vision, a picture of our hearts. It paints a picture of the future to see that we're part of something bigger. It points us to Christ. And write down this reference, Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is God speaking into a context through two prophets to wake the people up out of their slumber and to get them to go back to work and, of course, restore their relationship with Him ultimately. Now, what happens once it's been preached? Ultimately, the people need to embrace it. And they're going to embrace it in two ways. There's going to be the active ministry of God's Word, and then there's secondly going to be the sustaining ministry of God's Word. I want you to see this here. Verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Again, no small statement there. All the result of the ministry of the Word. Question, do you allow the Word of God to wake you up? I mean, do you come to the Word of God? Do you sit on the Word of God? Do you anticipate coming into church, not saying, oh, Pastor Rod's going to say something or another person's going to say something. What is God going to say to me that I need that's going to slap me silly so I can continue to do what He wants me to do? Is that a question you have? Is that a question you come longing to have answered? Second question, do you have a stiff arm toward the Bible? You might think this way, I love listening to the Bible. I love sitting under preaching and teaching from the Bible, hearing about the sinfulness of the world around me and about how God is going to bring judgment on the enemies in the future, about how the church is going to powerfully march on with the gospel, but... If the Bible or the preacher start to confront me about my marriage and my parenting and my giving and my priorities or my involvement in the body of Christ, the stiff arm comes out. He says, God, I don't want to listen to you. Yeah, the church is going to march on, but just don't get too personal with me. The Lord says, don't be like those who have rejected God's word and rebelled against his instructions. Instead, Return to me, and I will return to you. So, friends, when the alarm clock of God's Word starts to buzz or ring, it is not time to hit the snooze button. It's time to wake up because the Word of God is active. He's speaking into your life right now. And we need it because we need that reforming dynamic of the Word of God in our lives. And the, not only that, the Word of God is embraced. It motivates us to work. It's easy to be discouraged by all the pressures that we face, all the obstacles, all the opponents that we must endure day by day simply to walk by faith. We're still in that letter A, by the way, um, under that section, active ministry of the Word of God. But when we allow the Word of God to speak into our lives, into our discouragement, into our 
fear. We are motivated to once again pursue God's purpose for us. And we begin to see, or we begin to, to, to think to ourselves, you know what? We need to work together for the kingdom. God wants to use my gifts to, to, to help be the resource to, to grow his kingdom. He wants to use my resources. He wants to use my relationships. And we see ourselves as part of the process. And when God gives us this new perspective and challenges us to be faithful to the responsibilities that he has given us, then we live our lives for him. We, we start sharing our faith. We start growing our family in the ways of God. We start partnering with our church community. We start glowing with the gospel as we interact with others. Friends, we should be willing to consider our ways as we open or sit under the word of God. And we should be willing to realize that we are living in a day of small things, which Zechariah talks about. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, what we do in our life might not seem very, very significant, but they're all part of the links in the chain that God is using to grow his kingdom. So don't, don't despise the small things. 800 years ago, a traveler happened uh, to be gathering, uh, to, happened upon a gathering of men who were just hammering away at stones. This was in England. And curiously, he came up to a man and said, you know, what are you doing? And the man just kind of scoffed and says, I'm hammering a stone. What does it look like I'm doing? They're like, okay. So he goes up to another guy. He says, well, what, what are you doing? And the man says, I'm cutting stones, and when I earn 10 pounds, I'm going home. Okay? Goes up to the third man and asks him the same question. Sir, what are you doing? And the man stopped and he looked out into the sky. And he says, I'm building a cathedral. You've probably heard that before. But I think it's helpful for us to say, what is it that we're doing? We can be so focused just on the task rather than on the big picture of being part of what God is doing. He's called us to that. It's the active ministry of God's Word. Secondly, the sustaining ministry of the Word of God. Look at verse 2. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, this doesn't mean that the prophets were there, you know, lifting boulders and helping, you know, build the, the, the temple, although they may have jumped in to help. That wasn't the point of what's being said here. They were with them, and they were sustaining them through their prophetic ministry, the ministry of the word, over time. If you go back to both Haggai and, in particular, to Zechariah, the, the message from God doesn't all happen at one time. It's spread out over time. And so it's while the people are building, they need to continue to hear from the Lord. Friends, this is so critical for us. We need not just the one-time message from God. I mean, some people are like, yeah, well, back when I was a teenager, you know, I did this. And, well, what about now? How is God sustaining you now? How is he growing you now? Is he still at work? Are you willing to, to have him come and have his way with you? Friends, when you put your Bible down, you miss out on solid spiritual food. You won't have a healthy spiritual diet. You won't see the difference between what the world wants to feed you and what God has provided for you. You will likely start to feast on the fast food ideologies that society is pumping out day after day. Yet God wants to encourage and strengthen you in your walk, and he does that through the restorative ministry of the Word. And everyone in this room needs that ongoing, sustaining ministry of the Word. Look at your Bibles again now to Ezra, and I want to draw your attention Chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15 says this, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius the king. Friends, all that happened 
Yes, by God's hand, but through the ministry of the Word of God to His people. And let me just leave you with four challenges here from our text this morning. Number one, wake up out of your slumber. See the apathy, the fear, the discouragement, the selfishness for what it really is. It is real, but it's not the end of the story. Haggai says, consider your ways. Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Start again by making the intake and meditation of God's Word at the heart of your Christian walk with God. Start to marinate in His Word and allow it to change you. Wake up out of your slumber. Secondly, get up and get back to work. When you became a Christian, you started on fire. You wanted to soak it all in. You wanted to learn. You wanted to grow. And then over time, life happens and Things get eclipsed and set aside, and you end up just kind of cruising. Get back to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You started your marriage full of joy and anticipation, wanting to honor the Lord, eager to serve your spouse, but discouragement, conflict, fear, apathy have set in, and in your heart you've given up. You may still be together but you've given up on working on growing in your marriage. And friends, it's time to get up and get back to the work. You welcomed that child or those children into your home, and it's been rough to be parents. You've watched videos on YouTube. You've read books. You've listened to seminars. You've fought with your spouse about the kind of parenting you need in your home and you're now just passively cruising rather than actively parenting for God's glory. Friends, it's time to get up and get back to the work, to go back to the Word of God and allow it to guide you, to show you how to parent for His glory. Wake up, get up. Third, look up. God is still sovereign over us. Even with all the mess that we make of life, he's still sovereign. We all need to take time to allow God to speak into our situations. All these voices that come to us, some from inside of us, I can't, it's too difficult, I'm nobody, I'm insignificant, I don't have any gifts to offer, I'm no good at discipleship, I'm no good at marriage, I'm no good at parenting. Welcome to the club. Or the voices from the outside saying, who do you think you're trying to... Dude, talking to me about this God. You're just a hypocrite. Stop talking. If you think throwing a Bible verse at something is going to make it better, then you really are a fool. And so you're just battling all these thoughts, friends. Look up. Listen to the voice of God. Now, he's not going to speak through a cloud. He's going to speak through his revealed word. You look up to him by opening the word, by sitting under the ministry of the word. So listen to what God says to Zerubbabel, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 9. <laughs> Again, this is prophecy in the midst of all this. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now that's a promise. <laughs> and that's a comforting promise. New Testament, Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Look up. Receive what God has for you. Be encouraged. And here's the last one. Put up. <laughs> Life and ministry is hard. It requires endurance, doesn't it? Requires endurance to press on with God. We'll face more ridicule, more hindrances, more opposition. There will be times of joy and celebration to be sure, but life ultimately will be hard. We don't say that to be discouraging. We say that as a, as a, a reality to say, but when you follow the Lord, you have guardrails that are going to help you navigate how God wants you to live. And ultimately, when you get to heaven, you want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we want to run the race to win. 
And we want to run the race with endurance to cross the finish line. Take the line from the Apostle Paul, some of his last words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. That just screams of endurance, doesn't it? <laughs> so friends, for us to do any of these things, we need the immediate and the ongoing restorative ministry of the Word of God. We end back with that verse in Romans. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You see how this was a significant, significant moment in the history of Israel. This is also a significant moment in the history of your life the history of Gateway Bible Church, to receive the same instruction that they received. Lord, help us today. Help us today to be humble before you. Help us, Lord, to, to listen to what you have to say, to be willing to consider our priorities in light of what you have said our priorities should be, to listen to your instruction rather than the world's counsel, Help us, Lord, to get back to those things, Lord, that you've called us to. To be people who are still pursuing our walk with you, seeking to grow in you, our progressive sanctification, Lord, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. To, to, to be the uh, godly husbands and wives who, yes, go through times of difficulty, but are willing to sort through those things together and for your glory. Lord, to, to seek to be godly parents, not just allowing our kids to, to run the home and run free, but, but putting boundaries and establishing guardrails that are going to help them ultimately in their life, but ultimately to see that you are a great and glorious God. Help us, Lord, to, to be a church that is willing to be shaped and fashioned by your truth, even if it's an area of discomfort for us. May we be humble before you, Lord. May I, as, as the teaching pastor here, Lord, be, be shaped and fashioned by your truth so that I can proclaim it in such a way, Lord, that would, would present it in its raw nature, Lord, so that our people would, would hear you for who you really are. Oh, Lord, we desperately need this restorative ministry of the Word of God in our lives. Help us to submit to it, to be thankful for it, and to grow as a result of it, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.